Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Fines. Dr. Fines is a holistic GP, and she's got a special interest in mind-body medicine. I'm so pleased and thrilled to have you here today, Dr. Fines. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Daniel. Very happy to be here. The main reason I wanted to get you on is because with everything that's been going on in the last probably 10 to 12 months here in Australia has really um, got me questioning a lot of things and I'm still not really sure what to make of everything. And I noticed that there are probably some things that um, people need to start thinking about that they may not have necessarily thought about previously to this. And yeah, you definitely share a bit of a different perspective on things. So you'd like to sort of touch on why you've decided to speak out and let it be known that you do have a differing opinion. Um, Daniel, before we get started, I I should um, mention I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, I'm not working in hospitals on the front line, so I can't claim to have that sort of expertise. But right from the get-go, and I was overseas in South America when this whole uh, pandemic broke out, Something just didn't fit. It it just felt odd. And I think my medical brain and my common sense brain said, this this doesn't fit. You know, there's something unusual about this. And really by a series of um, synchronicities and coincidence, I found myself talking about it. And really I've been very compelled to do so. Uh, more than uh, I've ever been about anything before, to be quite quite honest. And I, I've seen a lot of, um, let, let's say, potential manipulation of the communities and part of me just can't stand, stand back and just, just watch it. And, and, you know, my opinions are my own and my background in mind-body medicine does inform my opinions. I'm seeing all of this through that lens. And uh, I've been a doctor for about 40 years and a holistic one for most of that time. But I've also trained in other paradigms, including kinesiology. So I have that background as well. And that background is informing uh, my, my opinions. And uh, I think we're all very confused at this stage about what is going on because the authorities have flipped and flopped on recommendations and sanctions. You know, we're getting different opinions from various bodies, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization and the CDC will be saying one thing one month and then something else. So I I think we're all in a position of being quite confused and I don't think anyone really knows the complete truth of what's going on. And that's a really great uh, way to sort of lay the foundations for the discussion today is that I don't think anyone really does know what's going on, but you're right. Things do seem really confusing. Mm. And I, like yourself, have been fairly outspoken uh, in a fairly diplomatic way or as diplomatic as I can be uh, in response to what's been happening. But I feel like even though I have been fairly diplomatic and I do watch what I say, people are still very uh, unwilling to look at things from a different perspective. And it seems like anyone who challenges the status quo or the commonly held narrative is some sort of crazy person. But I wouldn't consider us to be crazy people. I think we just have some valid questions. And it concerns me when uh, you know health professionals like ourselves are asking questions mm-hmm. and we would like answers to them. But for some reason, we're just told to be quiet, not ask questions and, and just yeah, keep our heads down. And uh, that's not the way science works, in my opinion, is that we should be able to ask questions openly and honestly and, and have a really genuine discussion about things, don't mm. you think? Well, um, you'd be well aware that the censorship is absolutely rampant. So anyone who has an opinion that is diverging from the consensus narrative is very, very quickly um, slammed down, like I've never, 
seen. Well, none of us have seen this previously. And I guess the definition of crazy is anyone who questions the consensus narrative and what's been fed to us from the quote-unquote authorities, the so-called experts, and particularly the mainstream media. So what I've observed really over the 40 years of being a healthcare practitioner and basically being a human being is that we humans are very and innocently gullible and impressionable and therefore potentially very programmable and controllable. And this has been very, very obvious to me um, during this whole time. And it's not to blame anyone. We're communal creatures. It's just the way the way it works. It's part of being in, you know, part of the human collective. But that programming can be taken great advantage of, and I've seen that. Uh, during this time, and particularly when people are in a state of survival fear, they are particularly programmable and uh, really can forego common sense because of those fears which will have them looking for an authority to give them a quick solution. Uh, And look, (laughs) this may not be a popular term, but in my opinion, it's nothing short of brainwashing. And people are offended by that term. But when you look at what we've been subject to, that constant mainstream media narrative, not that I watch the mainstream, but the times I accidentally have, I've been, um, found it uh, very interesting, I could say. The, um, you know, the banners in the supermarkets about keeping the distance, the signs of the the masks, the, the crosses on the pavement, um, you know, people wearing masks, that alone, the visual of people wearing the masks. So, this is a constant, unrelenting, drip-fed um, brainwashing to put people in deep survival fear. And when we're in that deep state of fear, we're very, very focused on the perceived threat and that at the expense of our um, prefrontal cortex. So you've probably had this experience, Daniel, but you can present, you know, commonly uh, accessed data to people and they just cannot read it. They cannot see it. You know, saying that, well, this actually, in in this country at least, is less dangerous than the flu. You know, there are many other causes of morbidity and mortality. But because people have been trained to be so focused on this invisible enemy, the virus, um, they they often don't see the data that could allay their their fears. You you might have had that experience yourself. Daniel, where you say, well, these are the facts, this is what's going on. The reaction to this seems to be a little bit out of proportion. And um, in a strange way, people, some people, not everyone, of course, want to maintain that state of fear because in a weird weird way they're thinking that they're being protected if they maintain that fear. So when you try and say, well, you know, we can calm down, it's not that bad, a lot of people, are, you know, vehemently oppose that sort of um, point of view and, you know, people who uh, try and present the data will be called a um, pandemic denier, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if you've had similar experiences, but that's what I've found, that I, I can say, look, look at the data, and they can't see it. They, they just yeah. won't see it because that fear has been, been so insinuated, that survival fear that they're focused on that immediate threat. And that's just so I'm not blaming them and I'm not saying it's um, most people. It might be most people. It's not all people. That's just the way the brain works. I've spoken to a number of other medical doctors Mm. uh, in confidence Mm -hmm. and they've told me that they are of the opinion that the response to this has been incredibly disproportionate and that some of the measures that have been take, uh, undertaken are potentially harmful. Yeah. And I've said to them, you know, why don't you want to say anything? Mm. One told me that he actually had said something but was silenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and the others have said that they don't want to potentially lose risking their license to practice or their registration. So do you think that that's one of the reasons why we haven't had more doctors like yourself saying anything? And um, why do you think that many doctors are not coming forward and saying something? Uh, Daniel, it's something I have pondered, I must say, and um, 
I, I think there's not a simple answer to this, and everyone's different, of, of course, and we're all going to react, you know, through our, our own filters. Um, one thing I can say is that traditionally I've never known doctors to be afraid of viruses. Like it, traditionally we have people coming into our consulting room with all sorts of bugs and viruses and and we knew that we developed quite a robust immune system by that constant contact with these things. So there was a certain toughness about that's my patient, I'll care for them, but I'm not really personally afraid that I'm going to get that virus necessarily. But that all changed last year. And I've never seen that before, to be, to be quite honest. Maybe it has occurred in individuals, but I haven't seen it en masse. So, again, I think it's people being scared to, I mean, you know, it's as simple as they have had their survival fears well and truly um, triggered. So that reason goes out the window. But to get back, yes, a lot of people and a lot of doctors and a lot of the healthcare prof professionals will be seeing this and saying, no, this is a, um, a massive overreaction to what actually is going on. I mean, when you um, lock down for one case, you really have to question that, don't you? I mean, you know, the, the things that have been happening that a lot of people are taking for granted uh, would never have happened previously. So, yes, I'm sure a lot of people are afraid of losing their uh, source of income. I think that's probably a big one. I can't speak for anyone else. I'm just, this is what I observe. And I suppose if people are feeding children and they've got commitments, et cetera, et cetera, um, that, that's very understandable. And that's one of the survival fears that's been manipulated is, oh, if, if I lose my job, I can't feed my family. So it's it's very human. It's very understandable. The problem with that that I've seen is that the more as a group we acquiesce and we say, yes, I'll just comply, I'll just be quiet, um, I'll just stay in the background and let it all unfold and I'm sure this will come and go and we'll be fine. Well, I don't see it that way. And what I've observed is the um, uh, frog in the boiling water scenario you, you probably uh, are well familiar with it, where the frog is put in a pot of cold water, put on the stove on a flame. I don't suggest anyone does this at home, by the way. And then the uh, heat is slowly turned up until it's at boiling point and then it's too late, but the frog hasn't noticed all those changes in temperature until it is too late. And my concern is if we keep on relinquishing our freedoms for the uh, promise of security and safety, that's not going to end well, in my opinion. I just don't think it works that way. But it seems that a lot of these sanctions are quite arbitrary and whimsical. And, you know, I think people have stopped looking at the scientific basis on why it's been done because there often isn't any. So my concern is that the more we acquiesce, it's very understandable, but if everyone just complies, yes, I'll do this, I won't say anything, uh, we're completely controlled. And, look, I think we've seen that. We've seen it. Um, uh, you know, we see it with the mask wearing, um, which I personally have looked at a lot of research on masks and I have not come across anything that convinces me that they're protecting uh, myself or anyone else from um, viral spread. I just don't believe it. But the majority of people comply, um, you know, probably mainly because they're scared of the virus. They've had their survival fears triggered. But also, they want to comply. They want to be seen to be doing the right thing. They don't want to stir the pot. And the other reason is that um, one of our main survival fears has been rejected from the tribe because being direct, uh, rejected from the tribe traditionally meant isolation and death. And we're still run by these primal fears. They might be dressed up in um, a different manner, but we're still run by them. So being confronted by someone when we're not wearing a mask, by them accusing us of killing their grandmother or whatever, it's deeply uncomfortable. It really goes into that primal fear of being rejected. And a lot of people just don't want to um, be put in that, that position. The other thing I've noticed, and I call it the, uh, the civilised moderate majority, you know, educated people, um, intelligent, well-informed, uh, 
a lot of them might have a good idea of what's going on, but they dare not be seen to be part of what they might think is the lunatic fringe, which I'm sure some people consider I am part of, but hey. Um, So there's a reputation and an image, I think, that a lot of people don't want to risk by stepping up and standing out because it is risky. No one knows the full truth of what's going on. And, we, you know, we can look at a lot of science. A lot of it is conflicting. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have to go with our gut feeling, our intuition, in addition to the science and say, this does not feel right. I'm very concerned about the potential consequences. There is so much at stake. And I know there is so much at stake. And this is why I can't help but... um, you know, be out there and have a voice for, for what it's worth. So I don't know if I answered your question, Daniel, but um, I'd be interested in your perspective on that. No, you most certainly did. And you bring up a lot of really important points there, Dr. Fines. And probably the, the first thing that I'd like to talk about, and I want to keep this completely um, evidence-based and science-based. And I think that's a, a very rational and um, appropriate way to focus discussions. And as I said, I, uh, I think it's important that we're allowed to have these discussions openly and honestly mm. as a matter of uh, investigating mm-hmm. things. And this is what the scientific method's all about. It is questioning the science and seeing, you know, these are these are my hypotheses or these are my understandings. Mm. If we are incorrect, please present us with the evidence otherwise and we'll happily change our thought processes or beliefs or whatever it may be. The first thing that I wanted to cover off on, and you did mention this, was masking. The evidence, as far as I'm aware, since masks were used 120 or 130 years ago to try and stop respiratory viral spread, mm-hmm. uh, since that time, there has been no conclusive evidence to show that there is any meaningful benefit. And I have been looking for evidence to show otherwise that's been recently published in the last 12 months to change these recommendations. Mm. And I can't find anything. And I wonder, Mm. where is the evidence that's being used to enforce uh, the mandating of masks? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it or that... um, you know, people should walk around with no masks on. I'm just asking, where is the evidence? And so there was a Cochrane review, a systematic review. It's considered the highest level of uh, evidence. It's basically the gold standard in medical science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you would agree. Mm. This was published on the 20th of November, 2020. Yeah. And this is what they concluded in regards to uh, surgical masks. So they said, we include nine trials comparing medical and surgical masks versus no masks to prevent the spread of viral respiratory illness. Mm-hmm. There is a low certainty evidence from these nine trials that wearing a mask makes little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illness yep. compared to not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And they go on and they compare them to respirators and things. But the, the crux of that review is that they don't provide the protection that they're purported to in the media. So mm-hmm. are we missing other evidence? or I mean, where are these recommendations well, coming Daniel, from? Daniel, I, I should mention first, you have a lot more um, trust in the whole evidence space um, model than I do and look to be, uh, maybe I'm cynical, but I think there's very little um, pure unbiased science these days and we, we're all subject to confirmation bias, including me, most definitely. But, you know, the World Health Organization about June of last year, they put out a number of very compelling reasons why mask wearing of the healthy population is is not advisable, in fact, can be harmful. We've all heard about the the OSHA um, statement saying that the way people are wearing masks are faulty and cause more harm than good. Uh, Studies have shown, excuse me, I can't quote them, they're in my piles somewhere, that um, increases of cases actually occurred in a number of places around the world after mask mandates were introduced, after not before, and that most people diagnosed, at least in the States, with uh, COVID-19 were um, avid mask wearers. So, you know, if if you look at that, you do ask why we are having that imposition. Now, 
I want to say if someone chooses to wear a mask, that's entirely their right. Absolutely. And some people did before this pandemic and some people will afterwards and it gives them a sense of security. And and some people do have, you know, vulnerabilities and frailties and insecurities. So if someone chooses they want to wear a mask forever, that is absolutely their right. But imposing it upon the whole healthy uh, population is a completely different thing. And um, in my opinion, the masking of children is a crime against humanity and I stand by that. I really believe it is. Because it's not just the physical aspects, it's also the psychological aspects of wearing a mask. So firstly, we're meant to change masks after 20 minutes, or I think they now officially say eight hours, but you know, it used to be 20 minutes. So I could list a lot of reasons why wearing a mask is not healthy for us. You may or may not want me to do that. You probably are aware yourself of what they are. But what, I'd be more than happy for you to list some reasons, absolutely. Well, well a German uh, neurologist, paediatric neurologist, um, a neuroscientist, I think her name was Margarita Grease Brisson, she put out a statement some months ago and, you know, the, the gist of what she was saying was that the brains of children are highly metabolic um, organs and reliant on good oxygen supply and she was very concerned about the effects of um, wearing masks on, on children. The other thing is, you know, as you know, Daniel, our our mouth, our oropharynx, the nasal areas, we, we've got multitudes, trillions of bacteria, viruses and bugs, probably more than anywhere else in the body, apart from the gut maybe. So the idea of enclosing that off, you know, on a hot day, if the mask is on for a while, to me it becomes a breeding ground for all sorts of bacteria and, and pathogens. And how people believe that Having a you know dirty piece of material over their mouth and their nose is somehow for their health uh, is beyond me to be quite honest. I think also it gives a really distorted message about health because it's looking for a unilateral uh, you know unilateral single dimension solution like you block the virus out uh, and that's all we need to do you know enough gels masks social isolation lockdowns will block it out. I know it doesn't work that way. I'm sure you do too. We have a terrain that we need to look after to decrease our susceptibility to what might be out there rather than just blocking out the virus. So, you know, I've seen people lined up in um, cars at, at Macca's uh, with their masks firmly on by themselves in the car about to buy a Happy Meal. So you, you really wonder about that distorted uh, message people are getting about health. And we don't hear a lot of, well, you know, get your vitamin D, go out and exercise, get lots of sunshine, uh, eat very good, nutritious um, food, manage your, your stresses, all these basic, um, uh, you know, sort of health advice most health practitioners would give. It's just the directive is put the mask on, you'll be right. So I'm concerned it's such a distorted message that people aren't looking at other aspects of their health. Um, if they just follow that, put the mask on, you're, you're right. So it gives them a false sense of security and to the extent that they might uh, potentially ignore other aspects of the health. The, the other thing that concerns me is imagery. And I'm go, going back to my um, interest in mind-body medicine. So I'm well aware that what goes on in our subconscious mind has um, a much more potent effect on our health than what we're consciously aware of. And, and we know there's a direct link between the limbic system and, and every aspect of our body through the neurological system and the endocrine system. And we know that the subconscious mind is directly um, connected to the emotional brain and the limbic system. So the actual image of seeing a mask unconsciously, not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously can be reminding people or giving the image of we are unwell we are vulnerable and we are helpless. And along with that is we can't speak, we can't talk up. So I know a lot of people would poo-poo that and say, no, I'm not getting that impression. But this is what is going on at a subconscious level and, and particularly concerning is it's very unnatural for us to cover our mouth and nose for any length of time. Okay, it, it's a complete inversion of what is good and healthy for us. 
because our main source of air, our main life source, goes through our mouth and nose, not to mention our prana, our life essence. So we're blocking that off. And yes, people still breathe, sure, but it's going to be affected to some extent. And when people comply and they actually suppress their natural instinct to not have something over their mouth, that is when it's going to more affect them subconsciously and potentially turn on and off genes in their body. And I'm just wondering what sort of illnesses might come out further down the track. And I hope we avert that. But I I wonder, because I know the potency of that imagery, particularly on children under the age of seven, because their brains are like sponges. You know, their brainwaves are in that um, more in a theta, delta, alpha state. So they take impressions in directly and more so the younger they are. So they're looking at all these people with masks on and they're not necessarily processing it consciously, but it is going to affect how they feel about health. And guaranteed, if we feel vulnerable about our health and that we can't trust our own immune systems, then that is going to affect our immune systems, most definitely. And it might not show up straight away, but it might two years down the track. So that's my concern. The other thing is we actually meant to see the nuances of the facial expressions around the mouth, you know, the the movement of the facial muscles. We're actually meant to see people smile. We're meant to hear them clearly, all right, and we're meant to be able to enunciate and speak clearly. And those muscles around the mouth, they're innervated by the vagus nerve, and that ties in with our parasympathetic nervous system, which, as you know, relates to rest, repair, recovery, and homeostasis. So all these things are happening at a subtle level, but they add up. So that's my concern. It's not just, oh, will it block out the virus or not? And I don't think it will. I think we would have to be hermetically sealed to block out viruses. It's it's everything else that goes with it. And are you in Brisbane, Daniel? In Yes, I am. Yep. Said I don't watch the mainstream news. I get snippets from here and there, but um, you was was it mandated you had to wear a mask in the car after at some stage? Yeah, it was. It was mandated uh, inside, outside whilst exercising and also in the car. And I think that was uh, done for a period of a, close to a week. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first day that that was actually introduced and my partner and I went for a walk. Mm-hmm. And when we stepped outside and everyone was wearing a mask, uh, it really affected us uh, psychologically. Like she, she, it affects me very much. I, I, I find it very um, dehumanising. Yeah. My partner, she looked at me and, we, and I looked at her. I was like, wow, I didn't think that I was going to be uh, so adversely affected mm. by this mm. as much as I was. And we both uh, have medical exemptions for yeah. wearing a mask and as we were walking around at our local area, people were literally looking at us like we were lepers or we were going to uh, infect them. Or It was really disconcerting and um, we didn't want to go outside anymore. So we just spent the rest of the time inside at home, which we know is not good because you're not out getting exactly. fresh air and yeah. you're getting in the sun. Yeah. And, and I've shared the same sort of thing, but at least you're conscious of it and you can process it. So if you're unconscious of it, that's where it more affects us. Because well, it's this- still affecting it. So at least if you're having that reaction, you can process it. So you're not going to be um, adversely affected by it as much. Well, this is one thing I've been asking. Yeah. I mean, if we equate, I mean, I don't like to ever equate the human body to a car or a machine because I know that we're not. But I certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. Would Would any mechanic? Mm-hmm. say that you can improve the performance of your car or you can protect the engine by putting a piece of cloth over the air filter or the air intake yeah. and then putting a piece of cloth and shoving it up the exhaust pipe, which is essentially what we're doing when we're putting a piece of cloth over our mouth because that is our air intake and our exhaust pipe. Oh, 100% agree. That's what I said. You know, our, our, our main source of air is through, well, our only source of air is through our um, mouth and our nose. So it's completely against the grain of what we would normally do. And um, that concerns me. And what concerns me more is that we're not allowed the discernment as adults 
to walk in a forest by ourselves, not near anyone, or this was, was the case, and maybe it will be again in Melbourne, but some months ago we had to wear a mask everywhere. So, not that I did. Um, so as adults, we're not allowed the discernment of, I'm in the forest by myself. There is no one around. I would like to take the mask off. And how many people obeyed that? And that is what concerns me more than anything, because this is beyond health, Daniel. It's not all about, about health. It's, it's, the, it's a much bigger, bigger picture is going on than health. That people, I agree. People just comply like children. And I know a lot of people are doing the right thing and, you know, they're thinking they're helping humanity. I, I do understand that. I'm not blaming them. But I was absolutely surprised to um, and shocked, to be honest, to see how many people would just bypass their common sense hand over their their will and their choices and their freedoms to the authorities. And, I, you know, it, I'm just aghast. I'm still aghast that, that that's the case. And this is a central lesson in, um, in my understanding is that part of the, the what we're going through is looking at patterns that maybe didn't serve us that have been kind of ramped up much more than they used to. And one of them is blindly obeying authorities, whether it's a medical profession, the government, whoever, and just saying, you control, you tell me what to do, you have ownership of my body. And, you know, this is coming out with the vaccine rollout. We know, we know that. So that alarms me all more than anything that people are so willing to hand over the authority of their own bodies to uh, these different um, organisations. Uh, Absolutely. People need to have autonomy over their own health. Um, and it, it's interesting where you do see people walking around who are um, obviously not concerned about their health any other time mm-hmm. in their life. Uh, you know, they may be obese or they may have various other obvious health problems but they will be the first ones to attack someone who's not wearing a mask a mask who does take good care of themselves and wants to support their own immune systems um through other means yes and and as i was saying before when people's survival fears are are really triggered and, and that's dominating their their behavior and their thinking uh, the, the limbic system is, um, it takes, takes things very literally. It, it's, it, there's not a lot of abstract thought that goes on in the limbic area. So a lot of people unconsciously equate mask means safety, no mask means um, my life has been threatened. It, it's as simple as that and they're not conscious of it. It's just that reaction and often um, great fear is dis- disguised as uh, aggression and I've been subject to, to that. I've had some people scream at me um, a while ago because I didn't wear a mask. And, you know, I, I realised that underlying was great fear that I was actually a threat to their survival. I know I wasn't, but they were perceiving it that way. And it's not their fault. You know, the, um, the, the fear agenda has been so predominant for so long that a lot of people can't see beyond that. Um and the same goes with lockdowns. I mean, I think, I personally think every sanction that's been imposed is a complete inversion of what is good and healthy for us. You know, the social isolation, we are social creatures. We are meant to be with other people. It is good for our immune systems. We produce oxytocin when we're around people. That's anti-inflammatory. It's good for our immune systems, particularly when we're under stress. And it's also good for um, neural development, I might, might add. So these things are happening at a subtle level, but as I said before, they, they all add up. Now, having said all that, Daniel, I'm a cleanliness freak. You know, I'm all for common sense measures, like you wash your hands before you eat. If you're unwell, you stay at home until you're better. If someone else is unwell, you don't go near them until they're better, as best you can. But we can't isolate ourselves completely from bugs and germs, and nor should we. We actually rely on them. We co-evolved with them. So normal common sense things are absolutely fine. And if someone is sneezing and coughing and they have to go out, sure, a mask might be appropriate. 
as a short-term measure in that sort of situation and certainly in certain clinical settings, um, of course. But crossing that line from common sense and good, sensible health measures into the ridiculous is a completely different question. Well, Dr. Fines, I always thought that one of the main reasons why people wore a mask, and it wasn't because it provided such fantastic, such a fantastic filtration uh, system to filter out the virus completely from yeah. us inhaling it. Mm-hmm. I actually thought it was so that well people could identify someone visually quite easily yep. who was sick and they could make a concerted effort then to keep their distance from them. But when everyone's wearing a mask, you don't know who's sick and who's well. Well, absolutely. And as I said before, it's given the message we are all unwell and we're vulnerable and we can't trust our bodies and our immune systems. And if we if we feel we can't trust our immune systems, they are not going to work as well because our immune system starts in the brain, in the mind. Um, so, yes, that, that is the concern with the, the largely healthy population wearing masks. Um, I, yes, I'm not a fan of them, as you might have gathered. If we start to move on to things like um, lockdowns and quarantine, for example. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, again, I'm just going off this Cochrane review document. Yeah. It's the title. People can look it up. It's Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses. Mm-hmm. And when I go to the evidence that looks for lockdowns yes. uh, and quarantining, mm-hmm. it says we identified one randomized controlled trial, which was done in uh, company workers in Japan. Mm-hmm. And it showed overall fewer people in the intervention group contracted influenza compared to those in the control group. 2.75% versus 3.18%. It's nothing, really. It's statistically significant. And then they said, uh, however, those who stayed at home with their infected family members were 2.17 times more likely to get infected. Mm -hmm. So if that's the only evidence that's available for locking down and f- physical distancing and quarantining, why is it being rolled out in every single country in the world? Is, is there something that we're missing here in regards to the medical evidence that the government has access to that medical doctors don't? Um, is this a family show, um, Daniel? No, uh, you're free to say whatever you would like to. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, as I said, uh, you know, most, if not all, of the sanctions are a complete inversion of what's good and healthy for us, including lockdown. So originally it was to flatten the curve. I don't know if you remember months ago. Well, lockdown for a little while to flatten the curve. And maybe that was reasonable when people really didn't know what was going on. They still don't know what's going on, but particularly in the early um, days of the um, quote-unquote pandemic, um, it was flatten the curve so that we don't overstress the uh, hospitals, the ICUs, etc. So, you know, that, that, that was reasonable for a few weeks. But I remember a Swedish uh, epidemiologist, I think his name was Johan Giesecki, he was interviewed by some Australian journalists um, early in the piece, and I remember him saying, well, the problem with lockdowns is going to be getting out of lockdowns, um, and that is proven. And if we keep on locking down, then and we then we go out of lockdown, and we're going to do this every time we get a case or two or three. We'll be doing it forever. And maybe that's that's you know the idea, who knows? So what if we did this every year for the flu? Okay, there's three cases of the flu. Okay, lock down the whole, whole state or what? It's absurd. It's completely absurd. And the precedent's been set now. The precedent has been set because people have complied and have said, fine, we'll do it. And it's like, well, we can say anything now. You know, it's, it's as I said, a lot of the directives, in my opinion, um, are quite whimsical and arbitrary. And and I'm not tr- trying to deny that people have been sick and people have, have died. I mean, they need to be very much respected um, for having gone through that degree of suffering. So I'm not denying that something is going on. We just don't know what the full picture is, and I don't think it's one thing, and I don't think it's one virus, and I don't think it's one natural virus particularly. Um, but I, I 
most of us don't know what the full picture of why people are getting unwell. But we know that most of the population are healthy. So in lockdowns, you know, there's also the the fallout from lockdowns, you know, the uh, increase in uh, mental health issues, the increase in suicide rate, though I did read something that denied that, uh, you know, people losing their businesses. Uh, That's the human side to suffering that doesn't seem to have a look in because it's all about survival. It's not about the human side. You know, quality of life is as important as, you know, just looking at survival, in my opinion. So I think it was Tom E. Woods, who's an American author, he said, lockdowns might have a pulse, but they don't have a soul. agree with that. And we've heard of stories of, you know, elderly people being alone for months. Elderly people in nursing homes dying, you know, so we don't give them a virus dying without the love and embrace of their family. I mean, to me, that's unconscious, conscionable. The draconian border crossing rules where mothers were separated from unwell children, um, people couldn't see their dying relatives or couldn't go to funerals of family members across the border. So, you know, a lot of these measures are without heart. They're without, you know, they were without understanding the complexities and the nuances of the human condition and and health and, and particularly psychological health because psychological health and, and physical health go together. They're inseparable anyway, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if I've answered your, your question, Daniel. No. Um, you certainly have. Mm. Um, and sorry, I didn't mean to confuse you. I think I may have um, misspoken before. So Victoria is not going into lockdown. It looks like they're restricting the number of people that can gather in households, um, mandatory masking, and they're uh, reducing the number of people that can return to work. So, um, yeah, it just looks like there's some so, more basic restrictions. Is that's just going to be on and off for a very long time. And that was for one one man who is asymptomatic. He's just tested positive. It's insane. What if we tested the whole population during flu season or for other coronaviruses? It, it's, it's absolutely insane. And to sit back and say, yeah, this is fine, I, I just I can't do it. For one case, it's a hysterical overreaction, in my opinion. I mean, the other thing about lockdowns is that, uh, as you would be well aware, you know, the immune system, we need to exercise like a muscle, meaning that we need that constant um, exposure to a whole variety of microbes. We know we have trillions of uh, microbes of various sorts in our body, on our body, in our environment. We're meant to, okay? We would not live without a microbiome. They're essential for human health. We've co-evolved with them. So the only answer is to learn to live with them, not to try and obliterate them out of existence, which is impossible anyway. The other thing about lockdowns is that, you know, usually a virus or or, or most will naturally attenuate the more it spreads through a community. We used to call that um, herd immunity. And that's a whole nother discussion. But there is a potential that with lockdowns, we're going to um, select out more more serious strains or mutations because they're going to circulate more in the ill in um, in the frail in institutions. So potentially it's doing the opposite of what we want anyway. And we've already heard of mutations, et cetera. So, yes, protect the vulnerable, the elderly, the immunocompromised as best we can without question. And anyone can stay in the home forever and wear a mask if they want to. But to actually try and isolate us from, you know, viruses and bugs, one, it's impossible and it's really not healthy for us in in any way or form. And I think we might have mentioned resilience. So resilience is it's, it's a mental attribute and it's also a physical and it's also our immune system. To have a resilient immune system, we need to have that contact, as I said, with, with different um, bugs, but protecting those who are more vulnerable, um, as I said. And, and the other thing that I'm observing is that we've been trained to not trust nature. 
to not trust the very design of life and not trust our own bodies, our own immune systems and, and our own common sense and intuition. And um, the, the, uh, the WHO quite recently changed the definition of herd immunity to be that of uh, vaccine-related. So in one foul swoop, they've discarded uh, millions of years of natural biological history by saying, um, well, it's all vaccine-related. So we can see where this is going. Yeah, and I, I do want to touch on the vaccination in just one moment. And, um, you know, we've lived with viruses for thousands, tens of thousands of years, and we're still here. So we, we do have an immune system and it's yeah. got us this far. And I think people who may not have any background in health don't realize that there are actually more viruses in our body than any other cell, bacteria or human cell. So we are full of them and we do just fine. Um, and this leads me to my next question, and I'm not sure what your knowledge is around mm -hmm. the PCR testing. Mm -hmm. um, is it a valid method of testing? Is it effect? Uh, is it uh, accurate enough to test for what they're trying to test for? And should we be relying solely on that test for the diagnosis of this disease? Uh, no, 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 and no. So, okay, the PCR, the famous PCR test, the reverse transcriptase PCR test, which was deemed the gold standard for diagnosing uh, COVID-19. So COVID-19 is a supposed disease. SARS-CoV-2 is a supposed virus. There's some debate about whether it has actually ever been really isolated. I actually don't know. Um, I've looked at a lot of conflicting stuff, so I don't have the answer to that. But some people do raise, has it actually been fully isolated? So that question re remains there in my mind. So firstly, we've never mass-tested the largely healthy population before, in my knowledge, ever. Okay. So traditionally, a, a healthcare practitioner would look at a patient and would look at symptoms and signs and then uh, come to some sort of diagnosis or suspected diagnosis related on that and then do a test to support that diagnosis. And that might include the PCR test. Now, very few tests are 100% reliable. We know they have false negatives and false positives. So the problem with the PCR test was that there was very little standardisation and a little agreement on the threshold for positivity. Now, you would think with a test that essentially caused close down of the whole world, you would have some standardisation. And we know that the cycles of amplification determine um, how accurate or not the test is. So the higher the cycles of amplification, the more likely it's going to pick up uh, RNA particles rather than live viruses. And Fauci even said publicly last July, anything with cycles above 35 is pretty much useless. It's just picking up dead strands of nucleotides, not live viruses. So it has no indication of infectivity. Now, I believe, and it's hard to get this information, and I could be wrong, and please, anyone can correct me, but I believe the cycles in Australia were 35 or 45. So 45 is alarming. I would um, assume there would be significant false positives. Now, a test result is not a disease, but we're, you know, pretty much these sanctions have been imposed on the basis of test results, not unwell people. All we ever needed to know was how many people are significantly unwell or sadly have succumbed, their ages, their comorbidities, to give us some context of really what, what is the seriousness of this disease. But the way the term cases has been banding around has given a very alarming picture to the public because a lot of people assume a case is someone with a disease or who is significantly unwell. And a lot of people assume that a test result is yes or no, positive or negative, and, and you know, that, that's very, very far from the truth. So I'm concerned that it's, it, it's given a very misleading picture and it's, um, it's outright manipulation, in my opinion, because everything is on the basis, including the vaccines, of the number of cases. Yes, and, and you're right there. I think when people hear the word cases, they assume that 
someone is now in ICU, they're in a hospital bed, they are gravely ill and fighting for their mm-hmm. life, when in the reality of the matter is they are most likely to be asymptomatic. Exactly. I mean, if we tested everyone for, for influenza, we said, like, every year now we're going to test the whole mass population for influenza or whatever it might be. We're going to get a lot of cases, okay? We've never done that because we've never de- needed to do it. And my concern is for, for a couple of months here, we had zero cases. Now, how we have zero cases on a test that has known false positives is beyond me for a start, unless they turn down the cycles of amplification really, really um, low. So it was zero cases, zero cases. We still had to wear masks, et cetera, for, for quite a while. And then the um, sanctions relaxed. So zero cases is a very dangerous benchmark because anything above zero, one or two cases, can be declared an absolute disaster and be an easy excuse to impose all these sanctions again. And that's what's happening. And what happened in Victoria last night, they're classifying one case as an outbreak. And I was not of the opinion that one case was an outbreak. Well, I I can't even comment on that, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) An asymptomatic on tested has false positives. I mean, really, if if people aren't looking at this and, 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 you know, quite concerned about the reaction, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to push that the state of emergency is going to be extended until the end of the year. Now, why? So, you know, the, the other things are the tracking, the tracing, the QR coding. We need a permit to leave the state. Now, is that about health or is that about surveillance and control, really? Um, mm. Call me suspicious, but my medical mind, my common sense mind, these reactions do not make sense. I certainly share your concerns there and um, in regards to the isolation of the virus, I also have um, been reading some information around that and for anyone who's interesting, there is the um, report, the review report, which was authored by 22 medical doctors and research scientists Mm. and they've put this out challenging the Corman-Drosten paper, which was the paper, sorry, the paper that was um, written originally to justify the PCR test as being the, uh, well, giving it its accuracy and sensitivity and now it's being challenged so they're basing that on whether or not the virus has actually been isolated or not and they're saying that they haven't got the isolated virus so whether or not that's true i don't know but it it, it is being um, put out there by some fairly credible medical doctors and scientists yes and and you might find that a lot of them are quickly censored you know anyone who's not in agreement with the um the narrative um is either ridiculed, denigrated or, and, and or censored. You wonder why, because it would be reasonable that we as thinking adults can have some discussion. That would be a scientific thing to do, as you said earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So I guess now I would like to talk about solutions because yeah. the proposed solution that the Australian government uh, has coming for every man, woman and child in this country is uh, not far away. And I was just wondering if you think there are any other solutions that we may be able to uh, utilise that may be effective and also what your thoughts are on uh, whether or not the vaccination program is the way out of this. Do you want the short answer? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm... I'm uh, Happy to go into as much detail as you would like to, and I, I think it's important for the listeners to hear that. Big topic. It's a big topic. Um, and where do I start with this one? Okay. No, I don't believe it's a solution. I'm, you know, many would disagree with me. I don't. So let, let's start this way. You know, the the first tenet of any healthcare is firstly do no harm. Okay. And a uh, common axiom is, if it ain't broke, why fix it? So we're looking at vaccinating the largely healthy population. And we know that people under 70, this, I'm not saying it doesn't occur. I'm not saying people don't get sick. 
but it barely affects them, okay? By far it has been, and every life matters, I'm not saying they're not, but to put it in perspective, by far it's been elderly people with comorbidities, but there's always exceptions to that, of course. So another tenet of healthcare is you look at the pros and cons and you want you want the benefits to far outweigh any potential adverse effects. So that would be a reasonable thing to do, particularly if you're considering every child, adult, every person essentially. You'd really want to get that right, wouldn't you? Now, we know with the vaccine, vaccines very often take, let's say, 10 to 12 years to go through their proper scientific assessments, their studies, their um, checks, scrutinies, licensing. So that, that's normal. They take a long time. But because of the uh, so-called emergency situation, these vaccines have been pushed through and um, they've been allowed to have two months of data as opposed to years. That to me is very concerning because um, that's very little time to determine if something's effective for one and if it um, has potential significant adverse effects. We're also dealing with novel technology, the uh, mRNA uh, vaccines. Never been used in vaccines before, ever. No animal trials. Um, I'm not a supporter of animal experience of any sort, but usually vaccines do go through animal trials before they're trialled on humans. Now, the pandemic was declared in March last year. They were already doing human trials within a few months, which is unheard of. Like, I just cannot understand how they could be doing human trials so quickly after the pandemic was declared. If you have the answer to that, Daniel, I'd love to hear it, but that uh, was a big question in my mind. So the concern is we're rushing out a novel technology that, that is affecting our genetics. I mean, that's what it's designed to do. It is an mRNA vir- um, vaccine. Within a couple of months, and unleashing that on the largely healthy population, uh, it's, um, it's, it's very concerning. That, that's all I can say. Now, a lot of people, because they have been in such a state of fear of this virus, the invisible enemy, they're lining up like it's Christmas time and they're gleeful that, oh, we're going to be saved by the vaccine. We have no long-term studies at all. Of course we don't. You know, I know Pfizer came out and they said something like 95% efficacy and we probably don't have time, but when you really look into what that means, it's a very different picture to what that sounds like, very different. Firstly, it was on about 170 people out of, uh, what was it, 44,000 or thereabouts. So I won't go into details. It will take too long. But, you know, the the mainstream meeting, the government, the Prime Minister saying they're safe and effective. And if you look into it, we're getting a very, very, very different picture um, from what's going on. I'm all for informed choice. People do their research as best they can. I know a lot of people won't want to, but those who do, I would suggest they do as best they can and really look at the facts as closely as they can before they make a choice unless it's going to be imposed upon us. Now, if we're looking at a medication that might have potential adverse effects for a very unwell person, that's a very, very different thing to giving a novel fast-track vaccine to the largely healthy population. And it's quite intriguing that hydroxychloroquine, and I know it's completely controversial in this country, but that was, uh, I think, February of last year. It was banned. So I, as a GP, am not allowed to prescribe it, whereas we had prescribed it without anyone batting an eyelid for decades prior to that. So you wonder why that happened. And there's been at least 200 studies on hydroxychloroquine, which really are very supportive that, it, that you know, at least potentially it can help. So why, why, why did we ban that but we're saying okay to ban a treatment for unwell people, yet we're fast-tracking something else for the largely healthy population? And we know that vaccine companies, they're um, immune to um, liability. So, you know, there's no accountability if there's problems. 
And also regarding adverse effects, a lot of them, um, like autoimmunity, they don't show up until some years down the track. And I read today that I think it was Pfizer, could have been one of the others, with their trial, they're offering the vaccine to the placebo arm of the trial. So there's no control group. So we're, we're the control group. We, we are the phase, you know, we're part of the phase three trial, essentially. So if there's no con control group, they've all been vaccinated. We have nothing to compare it to, like two, five years down the track. That's exactly right. And if we see a, if people hear that it's a placebo controlled trial and they don't take the time to look into this, okay. they will never uncover the fact that the placebo was another vaccine, as you said. It's, it really bewilders me how this is all just sort of playing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's more I can say, and I won't, Daniel. Um, because uh, I don't want people to have nightmares, frankly. No, absolutely. And you know, I, I think I know probably where you would head with that. And um, I do share your concerns. Yeah. But, you know, and aside from that, you just wonder about fast-tracking um, a woefully inadequately tested novel technology that is affecting our genetic machinery. No one knows what that's going to do. So, you know, should we question it? Sure. And as a GP, I'm not allowed to. I can actually lose my licence by having this conversation, but hey. But why not? I mean, you know, even if I was prescribing a vitamin to someone, I would want to look at the pros and cons. You know, it, it, does the benefit outweigh the risk and the cost, et cetera? But we're not allowed to do that with vaccines. Mm. But, you know, you really have to ask why. So. A lot of the population are believing this is our saviour. This is this is the answer. This is our saviour. You know, we, we know with flu, and the flu vaccine has been around for a long, long time, you know, it's only about 30% effective. It does vary from year to year. It's not like it's 100% effective. We don't know the long-term immunity with this vaccine. The other thing is the trials haven't proven that it actually prevents getting the infection nor transmitting it to others hmm. so we've already been told well you know nothing actually is going to change you still have to socially isolate and mask up and etc etc so you wonder why people are so jubilant about it that they think it's going to save them and we can get back to life as normal but yes if it's not going in fact the opposite has been promised by um the likes of the who, Fauci, etc., say no. You still have to do all, all that. Um, yes, you'll still have to mask. You'll still have to quarantine, socially distance. And from what I've understood, the vaccine doesn't actually reduce the risk of transmission, hospitalisation, mortality. That hasn't been um, um, measured, as far as I know. The hospitalisation no. and mortality. So there are a lot of big gaps that we don't know about this. So I think just people need to open their eyes. I'm so, so grateful uh, to have you come here and, and speak with me on these topics. And um, I understand that you're extremely busy and I don't want to take too much more of your time. But in closing, I just wanted to find out if there's anything else you would like to uh, mention or any concluding remarks. Yes, I would like to, Daniel. As I said, um I tend to look at the overview rather than the details, though I do include the details. And this is much bigger than a virus or health. And uh, it's a massive crisis for everyone. We're all facing fears of different sorts. Some people are really afraid of the, the virus. Some people are really afraid of the lockdowns and sanctions and many other potential horrors. But, you know, crises also have a function. You know, they, they serve a purpose. And they're to make us look at and acknowledge systems, institutions, beliefs, behaviours, thought patterns, whatever, that have not served us well. So that we can look at them, put them on the table and say, uh, maybe for our evolution of humanity, it's better to go that way and not that way. So there's always potential for a positive outcome, no matter how dire the situation um, might look. 
But we have to create that and we have to take our power back. It's, it's, it's simple as that. If we keep on trading our freedoms, our sovereignty for promises of security and safety, which no one can give, vaccine or lockdowns or what, no one can give that. It does not work that way. But if we keep on trading, you know, our, our freedoms and um, sovereignty for that, it's not going to end well unless we make a bit of a change. And, um, you know, we're at a critical point right now. We really are. So I'm, I'm pleased to be having this discussion. I know many will disagree with me, but uh, I just suggest people do their own research as best they can, keep an open mind, and um, also tune in to what their intuition, their common sense and their gut is telling them in addition to any research they might be they might be doing. That's fantastic, Dr. Fines, and such wide, wise closing words there from you. I just want to let you know that I really appreciate uh, what you're saying and I completely support you in everything that you're doing. And we do need more uh, medical doctors like yourself finding their voice and speaking out because I agree we are in really desperate and critical times here. I don't think people realize just how bad the situation actually is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's the calm before the storm. So I'm going to get this out to as many people as possible and and hopefully um, it's going to get people thinking a little bit more clearly and uh, critically about what's happening. It's been my pleasure, Daniel, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're very welcome. And, um, yes, I wouldn't mind uh, chatting to you again sometime in the near future. There's well, still many other points that I'd like to cover off on today, but, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's uh, just a matter of, of time. We could be speaking for hours on everything, um, but I think we've covered some really important topics today. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Daniel. I look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.